do we know everything about cold therapy? Absolutely not. I think we're scratching the surface. Often when we think something's good for us, we think more and more is better. Often more and more than you tip into the damaging. That's never more relevant than heat therapy or cold therapy. Dr. Tom is Associate Professor at Sydney University. He's the Stride Stronger Research Director. He's my partner in crime, including our best-selling book, Match Fit. One thing that often comes up is erectile function or dysfunction. Talk to me about cold water therapy and testosterone. It would be a two-minute conversation. Um. <laughs> An athlete listens to this and they do a grade one hamstring tear. They should be applying heat rather than ice. There are times to use ice on an injury. The question you have to ask is, is that a good thing in every injury every time? The majority of injuries, that actually it's not. If you'd said there is no evidence at all showing that cold water therapy is good for you, I would say absolutely respect that. I'm going to keep doing it because it makes me feel good. If you do any activity that gives you well-being, mental well-being, perceptions of joy, perceptions of feeling good, that is good for you. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. If there's a question or a topic that I'm asked about more than any other right now, it's cold water or what we call cold water therapy. Episode number 82 of the Performance Intelligence Podcast with Paul Taylor titled Death by Comfort and Why the World Needs to Harden the Fuck Up, we dove deep into cold water therapy, episode number 80 with the Australian version of Wim Hof, Dino Gladstone, which was called The Science of Breathwork, The Art of Cold Water Therapy and the Allure of Wim Hof. Dino spoke about his experience with cold water therapy and also working with the crazy Dutchman Wim Hof. In the Sydney Morning Herald, two days ago, there was an article, a leading article titled Ice Baths Are Exploding in Popularity. Here's how to take one safely. How to take cold water safely, I thought the only person I can go to is Dr. Tom Barkley. Dr. Tom, welcome back. You are the most prolific guest on the Performance Intelligence Podcast. Help us, cold water therapy. Let's discuss. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. It's always great to be on the podcast. And, uh, and this is a great topic. No, I'm excited to talk about this one. How often do we get asked whether we're presenting together or if you're working with one of our executive clients or one of our big performers? I think every week when we connect and talk about our clients, it comes up. This person's asked mm. cold water. This person's doing that. We live and breathe this, and we thought we really do need to go deep because this topic is expansive, and to try and keep us, and I emphasize try, Dr. Tom, to try and keep us on track, a rough frame is, number one, cold exposure. What is it? And the different types of cold exposure. Two, let's talk about your experience, and we'll talk about my experience as well, around a CWT or cold water therapy. Three, the science behind cold. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it a fad? And number four is areas of application. And I want to go deep on these, including brown fat or what is called brown adipose tissue in the literature, recovery, recovery for sport, fitness, also for people traveling and working, pushing hard. We'll look at testosterone and cold. We'll also look at how do you treat sports injuries and the psychological effects. Because just a little side note, even if Dr. Tom says there's no research or science behind any of those, I will continue to do it because it makes me feel good. And number five is the protocol for people to follow. How does that sound for you? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great frame, Andrew. I mean, we could spend hours and hours on this. We, we do spend hours and hours on this. We, we just need to condense it here today. Well, let's, let's give the listener a bit of context. You've spent days researching this and you said to me before we started, here's the, the chapter. We're, we're doing a new book next year called Performance Intelligence, or we think it is, and you've just done days researching one of our chapters. So let's start number one. What is it? So from my understanding, cold exposure, you could have cold showers, exposure in nature. It could be an ocean swim, uh, swimming in a river, an ice bath, or getting into cryotherapy. Cold therapy, if we use that as a broad umbrella term, is any time we reduce body temperature below what we consider to be our normal or our optimal uh, body temperature. So just as we, when we spoke um, several months ago about heat therapy, we ended up talking a lot about sauna. When we talk about cold therapy, we're at the other end. You know, when we think about hormesis and about how our body uh, gets challenged in different environments, we get challenged through heat, we get challenged through cold. We're now on the cold end here. So anytime we reduce our temperature and from it, what is that reduction of temperature when we can get into that? Um, because, of course, we run two temperatures. We have our peripheral temperature, which runs slightly colder than our core temperature. And uh, if we think about what are we reducing, when we reduce our temperature externally, we start with the external extremities and we're reducing the extremity temperature first. So, Okay, so we'll start with a bit of the science because we want to just give people a broader understanding on physiology. The word hormesis, I find myself talking about this quite a lot. In fact, I did yesterday and, and people, I haven't played this back to you, I was up in the Gold Coast hinterland yesterday working with a local council group who's going through a lot of change. There's five different divisions being merged into one, so you can imagine the stress coming up. And I just spoke about them getting a better rhythm, a better operating rhythm productivity, but also using a lot of these tools that you and I talk about around performance intelligence. And everyone was in that static linearity, so there was no real stress. They weren't having heat. There was no interval training. They were just in this constant state, and then there was no down regulation either, and they weren't having cold so there was no we, we talk about that bounce you know between hot and cold between eating and fasting between interval training and relaxing and that's great for us you don't just want to be setting and forgetting and, yeah. and that's what most people do around temperature sitting on 22 or 23 degrees and your body just gets numb to heat and cold so the question hormesis in a definition that people can understand it's essentially how the human body biologically and engage processes to adapt to challenges. So whether it's heat or cold, and we do this naturally um, to a degree in that, uh, you know, at 4 a.m. in the morning, your body is very cold. That's the coldest, if you measure the temperature, that's the coldest point in your body at 4 a.m. It's called the phase response curve. And then the body starts to heat up, warm up from there, and the heart rate comes up with it. So we do that, and then if you're, mobilizing or exercising your your temperature goes the other way it increases but we we have these natural responses to maintain what we call homeostasis and that's where we normal physiological responses adapting up and down heart rate up and down blood sugar up and down temperature when we talk about hormesis we talk about how the body grows and adapts through micro stresses so exercise is a great one. You know, you don't get the benefit while you're exercising. You get the benefit while you're recovering afterwards. You trigger the recovery response, the human growth hormone response, parasympathetic activation, all those 
So adaptations occur after you've had the micro stress of exercising and heat therapy, the same, you know, we get the shock protein adaptation, we get blood vessel dilation. And then afterwards, we get this rebound compensatory uh, response. And the same here with cold therapy in that these micro doses of something um, are purported to then elicit an adaptative response. So that's what hormesis is. It, it, I, I love the term and I, I think it's a, I saw so you interviewed uh, Paul Taylor, you know, a fantastic book, Death by Comfort. And, you know, that's at the heart of that is that the human body does adapt. The human body has evolved through these stressors. Well, thousands of years ago, we had natural stresses, and you used the word micro-stresses, and I think that's a good one, because a little bit of heat is great for you, too much will kill you. A little bit of cold water is good for you, too much will kill you. So a little that's bit right. of fasting, and you go on and on and on. So yeah. it's just this, this bounce, or we get this drop, peaks and troughs, and that's how our bodies are designed to live. Have stress, recover. Have stress, recover. And we've lost that art. Yeah, and it's it's one of the fundamental principles of, say, homeopathic medicine, you know, in that you expose the body to the thing that's the problem in a low dose so that then the body adapt counters and adapts back. And so I, I think this is a really good term, and it's one that I heard, I've heard i heard you publicly speak a lot of, and, and really people get it. People know that you adapt to these micro-stressors. The, the risk is that often when we think something's good for us, we think more and more is better. Mm. And from a hormetic perspective, often more and more than you tip into the damaging. And I think that's never more relevant than heat therapy or cold therapy. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe? And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. And, and I've, I've started calling it the physiological pulse. So we've got a pulse, you know, the highs and the lows, the peaks and the troughs, and people really get that. Now, I started experimenting on the physiological pulse a couple of years ago when I got nominated in brackets bullied into swimming the English Channel. Shout out to Natasha Moore. I'll send this to you. I was working at KPMG. Natasha rang me and said, hey, champ, I've just entered you in a swim. I said, Tasha, I don't swim. She parodied me. And she said, when was the last time you got out of your comfort zone? Are you playing the same game? I said, Tasha, why are you using my voice? She said, oh, I'm just trying to fire you up to do the swim with me. I said, mate, I'm not doing it. She said, that's okay. I'll just tell everyone you're soft. I'm paraphrasing. She didn't use those exact words. I went, all right, I'll do the swim. What is it? She said, well, it starts in Dover and finishes in Calais. And I just went, fuck, <laughs> no way. So that started the journey for me. It was nine months after that date when we spoke on the phone that I was doing an English channel swim in a relay. So I had to, one, learn to swim properly. Two, I had no idea what I was actually getting myself into psychologically to swim in dark water and to you know, push through some of those fears I had about the creatures underneath or potential creatures. But the third one was adaptation to cold. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really started researching this, talking to you 
because I was getting uh, borderline hypothermia. And you can't wear a wetsuit. A lot of people go, well, you're an idiot. No, that's part of the challenge is to get your body ready for the cold to do it. So you go south down around Huskisson. And the first time we were down there, Tom, swimming, I just got out after one hour in this water. It was about 16 degrees and I, I shook. And, and then I wasn't enjoying it. So that's where I dug into a bit of the research and the mindset. So that's where my experience started with cold water therapy on a bigger level. I now swim in the ocean all year. I have cold showers most days. I'll do an ice bath every couple of weeks. So it's become a real part of my protocol. Where did yours start? When did you first experience cold? You grew up in Ireland. Obviously, that's, that's a <laughs> nature exposure. But when did you start experimenting around this? Yeah, certainly. Uh the concept of adaptation is, is so true, though, because growing up in Ireland, you just didn't feel the cold and you walked around the T-shirt in November and December. You know, it's just odd. And I still find that odd when I go back now and I, in summer and I'm wrapped up. So we do it. So the concept of adaptation is really important here. I do think you acclimatize over periods of time. I, I would not be walking around in Ireland in winter now in a T-shirt. But I find that when I am back after about a week, I am out running in my shorts again and, and often down to short to sleeves again. So you do adapt quite quickly. So perhaps, perhaps we have got that ability to adapt a lot quicker, which no doubt would have helped you in your, your swim. Back to your question. My very first experience of cold therapy, if we put it that way, was as a three year old. And I only shared this with you earlier today, but I've got a scar here on my finger and, uh, it got, I got an abscess in it. And so I was taken to the local hospital in Tipperary. And so we're talking about 47 years ago, 48 years ago. And their method of anesthesia anesthesia then was actually to spray these, freeze the finger. And that was apparently going to anesthetize the finger so they could then lance, literally lance the finger. My memory of that was actually being held down on the table by three or four nurses while the surgeon did it in excruciating pain. So not a nice introduction to cold, I would imagine. No, but but a, an introduction to the history of cold therapy in relation to medicine in that actually that was their method of an anesthesiology for a long time. Now of course a lot of a lot of people experience that to a smaller degree when they get their ear pierced. You know, you if you go and get a gun, now, my second big exposure relation that was I did get I did pierce my ear when I was eighteen, and uh, and actually my girlfriend at the time did it, and uh, did it with a, a needle that she had uh, taken from the hospital. For love as a geeky eighteen-year-old. Oh, just madness, you know. So it wasn't a gun that you get in a professional area, and it was literally put two bits of ice on the ear, and then just shoved the needle right through. And it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt hardly at all. So I got my ear pierced at 18, again trying to impress a female. And my mates still tease me about this. In fact, they pulled out a photo at my recent 50th. I had big hair and I had a gold hoop earring. I, yeah, I thought yeah. I was a rock star of the track world. And I, I thought oh, I was so we're, cool. We're brothers from another motor because that's exactly what I did. I didn't go with a stud. I went straight and went you to You had sleep, the gold hoop sleeper, as well. The gold hoop sleeper. That, that was the, and it was so cool to turn up to the running track with this thing in your ear. Three or four days later, of course, I got infected and had to come out. So it was a few lessons I learned in there. But uh, back to your, your real question, I think I've had similar experiences to you as a triathlete of being in cold water and, uh, you know, finding it very difficult to function. So that concept of adaptation. And in the other area before 
we really looked into this from a, a performance and, and well-being enhancement was we've been using therapeutic hypothermia in the intensive care unit for, for quite a long time now in patients following cardiac arrest. And we've been using that to protect the brain in that acute phase. So, you know, I'm quite acutely aware of where using cooling the body down has really good therapeutic effects in the ICU. The other opposite end of that is in the emergency room, we have a saying that you're not dead until you're warm and dead, in that if somebody comes in after trauma or if they were submerged, they come in. We, we don't give up resuscitation until we've warmed the person up because your chances of survival when you're warm are a lot higher. And also it's very hard to differentiate what physiologically is happening when you're really cold because the acute physiological effects of cold when you're acutely ill or in a health crisis are actually quite detrimental to actual survival. So I'm used to it in that therapeutic health medicine arena but my own personal experiences started as a three-year-old. What, what is your weekly practice? So I said mine, I have cold showers most days, swim in the ocean a couple of times a week, ice bath every few weeks. In fact, I do ice baths with my son, Archie. He loves doing ice baths after soccer. And so I just have to pretend I enjoy them. I still, I'm still not going, oh, woohoo, an ice bath. But what, what's your weekly practice in relation to cold exposure? I, I'll have two or three cold showers or I'll have two or three showers where I finish cold for 30 seconds to maybe two minutes, depending on how I'm feeling. Often they are after I've had a sauna. And I, I think, you know, I've been quite open with you about this. I, I'm much bigger proportion of heat therapy and sauna use than I am cold therapy. But I do like the, con the idea of contrast. And I do like the idea of pulsing through both. And so I will often go from the sauna to the cold shower to the sauna to the cold shower. And I think there is good evidence of therapeutic effect in doing that. I think there's also quite a mental awakening and a pleasure effect of doing that. So my practice is to do that. I'll tend to finish most showers by just turning the hot tap off and just staying under it as long as I can tolerate. I'm probably a bit more of a wimp than you. You know, I'm not quite sure I would swim English Channel without a wetsuit. Wetsuit, yeah. But uh, I'm not as in love with having a cold shower, but I do appreciate that hormetic response is probably a good thing physiologically to keep me quite pliable and that adaptive response. The English Channel Association, Dr. Tom Buckley, would not give you a certificate if you swim it in a wetsuit. That's what I love about it when I dug into the history of it. For hundreds of years, people have been swimming the channel. You know, years, hundreds of years ago, some of them weren't recorded. But part of it is you can't swim it with a wetsuit. So you have to dive into all this. Yeah. I, I do want to go into the science, but before we do, I just got one other question as well. So as a three-year-old, did you live a long way from the hospital? How far was it? Uh, about 25 kilometres. So it's a long way to Tipperary. <laughs> wow. I, I'm, I'm just going to remain silent on that because I hear I hear this every other day in my life. And, uh, and actually, well, one of the nice things about growing up in Tipperary is that everybody's heard of it through the song. One yeah. of the most annoying things about growing up in Tipperary is exactly. <laughs> I can't believe you walked into that. Let's get into the science. Just, it... one, just one thing, Andrew, on, on the English Channel, how cold was the water? Uh, the water gets down to 14, 15 degrees, and with yeah. uh, currents or tides during the year, it can get down to under that. That's actually cold enough that you really did need to do. And I remember when you prepared for that, that nine months, you you really did train and adapt to that. And I think that's a real key message here. And part of that adaptation, of course, is that 
through that regular training and exposure in the cold, I'm sure you went from hating it to actually loving it in the end because your body physiologically would have adapted. You would have put on more subcutaneous fat on the body. And you see that in a lot of particularly ocean swimmers in that they, they can actually have quite a lot of subcutaneous fat and that's protective. And once you've got that adaptation, you can do something like that. I can swim quite well, but could I jump? Well, I can swim reasonably well. I can swim long, let's put it that way, um, from doing triathlons. But if I jumped in the English Channel tomorrow and tried to do that, I probably would be pulled out as a corpse because I wouldn't have done that adaptation. It's a really important learning that you went through there. It was an example of hormesis in action. And yeah. yeah. I, you know, with a physiology background, having worked in sport, having got to a good level at running, you you know about training for an event. So I knew what I had to do to build up and periodize, and you, know, you build up to twelve to fifteen kilometers a week, you know, at least three or four sessions in the pool. So all all that stuff just clicked into gear. Getting lessons was a huge part of it. So learning the technique was the other part, and and to learn swim technique, you got to go slow before you speed up. Yeah. But the third one was adapting to cold. I can remember one morning going down to Manly and as it, winter started to kick in and then you're on the sand and it's bloody cold on your feet. It was June, late June. And I can remember just starting to shiver and I got out in the water and I was shivering and I thought, I've got to do something about this. And a lot of it was mindset because when mm. you're there going, oh, fuck, this is going to be cold. Shit, I'm not going to enjoy this. It's like the cricketer walking out thinking, don't nick it, don't nick it. Or my rugby league players going mm. out going, oh, geez, I hope I don't get smashed. Bang, you get smashed. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So from the moment I would strip on the beach, walking down on the cold sand, I then had a little mantra, cold water is good for me. Cold water is my friend. I like cold. And then my monkey brain sort of kicked in. I was like, oh, yeah, this is actually good for me. Cold water is my friend. So I really changed that narrative. And then physiologically, I had to catch up. Uh, we went for a training camp. Uh, it was down at Huskinson on the south coast. And Saturday morning, you had to do three swims. So we started at, at 5 a.m. It was pitch black because you get a call when you swim the English Channel when the tides are right and when the weather's right. So we got the call at midnight that we were going to get in the water at 2.30 or 3 a.m. So you've got to get used to swimming in the dark and the cold. So this training camp, we'd swim for one hour from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Then you have a one-hour break. Then you swim from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. You have a one-hour break. And then you swim from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. So just before 5 a.m. on the Saturday morning, Chloe McArdle, who was coaching us, and Chloe is now called the queen of the channel. She's done more English channel swims than any other female. And Chloe was saying, Saying, all right, I'm going to call everyone's name out. Often we go in alphabetical order by surname, but today, and I thought, oh God, I know what she's going to do. She's going to say alphabetical order by Christian name. I'm going to be first. And she said, well, today we're going to flip it. We're going to go with everyone's Christian name. So starting off will be Andrew. So I had to lead it out, Tom, and you're swimming out into this black abyss. I can remember standing there in the cold sand going, yeah, cold water is my friend. This is good for me. All those metaphors. And then I started swimming out and it would have been 150 to 200 meters. And I felt this wave of anxiety come across me. And I was thinking, I can't do this. This is, this is fucking stupid. Why am I doing this? Natasha made me do this. I didn't want to do this. I don't have to swim. So I was actually getting ready to turn back. I was going to go back into the shore. And I knew if I went back that 150 or 200 metres, it was over. And then I don't even know how this happened, but somehow all the work I've done and study I've done in psychology and working with other athletes kicked in subconsciously. And I just came up with this mantra, which was stay calm, be strong, 
you've got this. And I started swimming and I went for a minute, stay calm. And I got into a rhythm. And you know that rhythm you get into when you swim. Mm -hmm. And I got out at the end of that one hour and I actually felt good. I did the second hour. I was the second fastest swimmer amongst the whole group. And even a few of my team members said, look, what are you doing? I just said, I just felt like in flow. So I went mm, from, mm. I don't know whether I can do this. Uh, one cold, two psychologically, stay calm, be strong, you've got this. And the second swim, I, I actually felt like a swimmer. And, and ever since then, that, that second swim, I just knew I'm fine. I can do this. Yeah, that, and I think that psychological aspect's really is really good. You just reminded me listening to you of the, the first time I started to do cold showers, I remember, and, and I got advice from you on it. Um, I think you'd been prompting me for some time, and I thought, right, time to do the cold showers. And the first cold shower that I you know, did strategically was in a gym, and, oh, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And I remember texting you at about 7.30 in the morning going, you know, I won't use the words I use, but they, were, they, they weren't thank you for a lovely experience. And, uh, I, and I you, think every second word I can use in your eyes because I try not to swear too much on this. It was fuck, fucking fuck. If I, there were certainly some some unique words. Uh, maybe not that unique in the public arena now, but and and you just text me back going, you know, um, uh, breed it out, Buckley, or something like that. And and I, and I reflected on that, and I went back under the cold shower, and I slowly deep breathed through it, and that 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 horrible feeling wasn't there. And that's become my practice now is to prepare by going in, but just staying calm, breathing through it. And, and now I actually really love the feeling. Um, so I actually said two things because I remember this distinctly. <laughs> <laughs> One was breathe it out, Buckley. And number two, I actually, in the text message, if I have to dig it up and maybe put a screenshot on, but it was number one, breathe it out, Buckley, because I knew you just go, oh, shit, yeah, we talk about this, I've got to practice. And two, it was harden the fuck up. And that's oh, all yeah. I said. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what I have loved about our evolution and our relationship, which almost goes two decades, so you poor man. <laughs> poor you. When we first started, a lot of it for me was feel. I'm quite intuitive. You came from a reason research background, having done multiple degrees, you know, being all the work you do at Sydney University and, and literally speaking on stages around the world about the you know, world-leading research you're doing. But we've now got a really nice blend in the middle. On cold, I jumped into it, pardon the pardon, and it was more intuitive and feeling and I had to. And then you looked at the research. So let's get onto that part as well, the science, fact, fiction or fad, because there's so much confusion around this, isn't it? Every person who speaks about yeah. cold water therapy, like I, I, I know the benefits for me. I will do it regardless of the research. I think that's important for people as well. This is not just the science of CWT, mm -hmm. cold water therapy. And if it doesn't stack up, don't don't do it. I will do it regardless of the research because it makes me feel good. But specifically, I've asked you to go deeper on the science and the research. So as a frame, is there no research because it doesn't work? Or do you think we need more time for the research to catch up? Okay, no, I, I'm going to answer just a long way because I often talk about what I see is the use of research where we, we, we use research to inform what we do or we use research and we translate it into our own practices or into things that we do. And then there's the abuse of research where we cherry pick parts of research studies uh, might have been done in 90 year olds that live in the, in the Himalayas and then we apply it to 20 year olds who live in Sydney North suburbs. 
or there's the cherry picking of one study of eight men who were under certain conditions showed a particular trait and then we apply it to all men so that that's abuse of research in my mind uh, as a scientist yeah He's, he's been calm on this. You get so fired up if you hear hear one person put a whole theory and synopsis on one research paper. Yeah, I mean, you pick one paper. I'll give you a great example of this in clinical medicine in, 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 in the other world I work in. In intensive care in the year 2000 at the World Congress here in Sydney, there was a paper presented from a group in Netherlands, I'm pretty sure it was Netherlands, on reducing blood sugar in intensive care patients. And it really was the talk of the whole conference because the effects on mortality were just stunning, absolutely stunning. And it was like, all right, we, we need to do this. We know in a stress response, blood sugars go up. Now we need to put these patients on insulin and bring these sugars down because this is beneficial. I sat there as a physiologist and as a clinician thinking, how can that be? How can that be? It's a natural stress response for sugar to go up because you need it, you know, but this is evidence, right? And so did some other way more smart people than me. And they did that. Following that, most intensive care units went out there reducing blood sugar in all their patients. Insulin became the nurse's nightmare because you're now titrating insulin, blood sugar, insulin, blood sugar. And then the ANZICS group here in Australia, led by some very, very clever intensive care physicians, set up a multi-center study across Australia and New Zealand, tens of ICUs, and they randomized patients into the two groups. And they didn't see the mortality effect at all, right? And this is what I call where you might react too quick to one study. Yeah, if you go backwards to that study back in 2000, that group had been studying this for about 20 years and they finally found an therapeutic effect. Everybody jumped on it because it seemed too good to be true. Now, there are some patients who benefit from it and there are some who don't. And I think the same might be true here we call therapy in that there are some people who will have certain benefits, but can you apply that to everybody? And so the way we would do this in the sort of medical world is we would do, we would look a lot at groups of evidence. So we would say, well, one study that's interesting in those people, two study that's interesting in two groups of people. And then you look to see how, are there lots of studies in different people under different conditions? What's the consistency in what they're testing? And then you can do what's called a meta-analysis where you pool all the patient's data into a statistical model. And then you can look at what's the probability that any individual is going to respond to that therapy. And that's kind of the thresholds we use before we change mm -hmm. clinical practice, because otherwise we'd be changing it every other week when a new study comes out. Now, if you apply that here in core therapy, you get some interesting findings depending on what you're looking at. So back to your question is, is there evidence or is there not evidence? There's lots of studies. Yeah. And particularly since the year 2010, there's been this rapid in interest in core therapy. So there's lots more studies. Do we know everything about core therapy? Absolutely not. I think we're scratching the surface. What does the evidence say? That's the bit I'm happy to talk about. And if we look at it from that perspective of what's the mass evidence, and then in the studies where they do, do show benefit, who were they and what is that benefit and under what conditions? And if we apply that now as we go forward, then we can be really transparent about where our opinions come from. What is clear is that there are physiological effects 
And there was a there's there's been plenty reviews of this consistent effects. So in order to say that something does something, you need to see some consistency among humans. This is often some of the trouble we have with some supplements that we that people take is that um, you don't necessarily get a dose response from them. Some you do, some you don't. Some people respond, some don't. So whereas whereas if you look at most medicines, you tend to have a predictable dose response. And and heat therapy, when we talked about sauna, one of the most persuasive things about sauna for me is that is that the, the duration of exposure and the frequency of exposure, you get a dose response. What do we see in cold therapy? Well, we know that you get an increase in heart rate, you get an increase in blood pressure, you get an increase in a lot of the stress responses. So that's what we're eliciting here is a stress response. Now you get that in exercise too, and you get that in sauna too. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You get an increase in noradrenaline, you get about a 500% increase in noradrenaline. And noradrenaline is a stress hormone, um, and it's a hormone that increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure. Um, so that's a normal response. And it also has positive effects on immune function as well. So getting that bounce with noradrenaline has other benefits long term for you. It does in short term intermittent, but of course, in long term, that long term stress can actually be an immune depressive thing. So, you know, for but short term intermittent, you also get it in exercise. Um, I think some of the studies would suggest you might get a little bit more in core therapy than exercise. What you also see is you get brown fat activation and then brown, this brown fat activation. I think this is an area of real interest in the research at the moment on metabolic health. I think there's been a lot of work in animals, less work or more evolving work in humans. Hey, I had a, I had a question on that, so I'll just jump mm. in. Mm. You've got a furry little rodent with a furry coat that is very different physiological makeup to a human. Yeah, they have a heart and they have capillarization and blood vessels and a, a little brain and everything, but they're not, they're not a human. So I always look at, oh, there's this study and it's been done on rats in cold water. I think, yeah, what, what utility does that have to humans? That's my sort of asking in, in a curious way. Does that actually have agency? It's the question we should be asking in this all the time in all research is saying, is this studied in humans or animals? Where was it studied in whole animals? Yeah, because a lot of the studies don't. So, and then the second thing is, what's the animal? And some animals are very, very poor models for humans. Some animals, models that are used in research do, do, does, doesn't translate across to humans hardly at all. This is one area where I think you have to ask that question purely because as you identified, uh, animals go around and they've got their own for for codes that's appropriate to their metabolic needs, to their natural temperature, to their nat- ability to adapt. Uh, we don't walk around with furry coats. We are very, very different. And so the application of external temperatures on animals may not translate to us. Studies that have looked at temperature within an organ and the effect within an organ, then I think you can actually get some proof of concepts through the animals. And I think brown fat's one of these areas where a lot of that works looked at the activation of brown fat. And, and brown fat is that fat that's got these energy cells, the mitochondria. Um, so in other words, it, it can do a bit of work. And of course, that work it does for you is exactly what you experienced when you were doing your swimming. It makes you shiver. It's a natural shivering response you get from activation of brown fat when you're exposed to cold therapy. 
I have to be the, the pragmatic physiologist and say, well, okay, so what? Why are we doing that? Well, we're doing that because the body wants to heat up. So, so it's a natural physiological response. And a lot of the researchers talk about BAT, which is brown adipose tissue, and they also talk about white, or white adipose tissue as well. So you want to be increasing that brown adipose tissue. Interesting example on that, it was actually after that first swim, and I've got some footage I'll have to show you on this, Dr. Tom. We were sitting in the car after our first swim because it was bloody freezing, right? The water was around 14 degrees and we're sitting in the car. It was Natasha's car and we had the heating ramp right up and we had hot chocolates. I couldn't drink mine because I was shivering so much. And and Tash and Tim were both laughing at me. And the more they laughed at me, the more I was getting pissed off in a fun way. I just like, stopped shivering. It went for ages. And it happened after the second swim, less after the third, because I got in the sun. It was out then by like a lizard. Later that day, my neck muscles felt tight and sore i was contracting so much from the shivering so that was an extreme example but when you put yourself under real cold water you do shiver a hell of a lot and i know it's designed to bump up your metabolism to get you going again and that's why that brown adipose tissue is darker right because it's got the increased layers of mitochondria yeah yeah and and i think this is a really interesting area of research and there are teams uh, there's a team in the UK and there's a few teams around the world that are looking closely at this. And, I, and I, I think this is a great area to look at. I mean, essentially, the more brown fat you have, the more likely you are to have healthy amounts of white fat. Yeah. And to have a, a, a what we would consider, I won't use the word normal, say a good body mass index. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and they're good indicators of health. But brown fat has a few other things, good, good things in the body. You know, it produces stores energy or on calories, uh, helps control blood sugar and insulin levels. So the, the, it's natural there's a lot of interest in brown fat. And, and what we do know from animals, uh, so particularly from animal studies, but a couple of human studies starting to go in this area as well, is they're finding links between cold temperature and activation of brown fat. And often when you have more brown fat, you'll have inversely lower white fat. Not every study is showing that. And I guess this is where I come back to the consistency here. You know, is it going to be the same in men as women? Is it going to be the same as you're older and younger? Um, and so I think some of these observational studies around in winter time and you're exposed to more cold, therefore you have more activation of brown fat. That seems quite normal, physiologically plausible for me because that would just be natural mechanism. Can we say now that if you have cold showers or you do ice baths, that you will create more brown fat? I'm going to say at this stage that we don't have evidence to support that. That does not mean it doesn't do that. Is it because you're not exposed long enough? So when you're doing a swim for a longer period of time, that core temperature drops a lot more than if you just have a cold shower for two or three minutes? Well, I think there could be a couple of things to that. I mean, one... One is that you know, our energy, the energy that the body derives, very little of it comes from brown fat naturally anyway. And secondly, I, I'm not sure we've just got the studies done yet, mm. you know, to show that consistent physiological adaptation. Now, I, I would be certain there could be some scientists sitting here whose primary research work is that, and they've got data and they're evolving in that. What I'm saying is, when I look at a macro level, at the body of evidence, there is not a big body of evidence yet. 
and there's and among that evidence there is not a consistency in findings therefore my conclusion is that i can't say that that will happen for you andrew tomorrow or for johnny tomorrow if they start doing it is it possible that that happens well i think the fact that if you're exercising full stop then you're starting to have changes in your adipose tissue fat anyway so the exercise bit would help if you're doing it in the cold there are probably other benefits you're getting and perhaps for some individuals you're getting this uh, metabolic benefit beyond the exercise from doing it in a cold temperature so translate this dr tom regular exposure to cold water is good for bat for brown adipose tissue or for stimulating the brown adipose tissue to help us get into overload so we don't get so cold yeah i i think that's correct i think the evidence is quite clear that when you are exposed to cold temperatures you activate brown fat and so the more exposure you have the more activation you have um i don't think it's as clear yet uh, or at this time to say that actually regular cold exposure results in a better balance of brown to white fat i think there are some suggestions in some studies that perhaps that might be happening in some people but i don't think there's a mass body of evidence at this stage to say that it happens in everybody who's exposed and and maybe we'll come back in 5 10 years time and we'll be revising this so as a scientist i always i always reserve the right to come back and change my opinion when the evidence changes love it let's go on to testosterone I've said this in a previous podcast and you almost fell off your stool. I didn't know whether it was a combination of the pulsing mechanism that we do with a lot of our corporate clients, especially men, who will often turn up to us and when I'm talking to them and they start to feel that psychological safety, one thing that often comes up is erectile function or dysfunction. I had one client come back and after a three-month program with you and I, he'd been doing resistance training. He was eating a lot more protein, getting much better sleep. He was doing cold water exposure or cold water therapy. He was doing heat. He was connected with his family. So there are multi-factors associated with this. But he said to me, quote, he said, I'm waking up every morning with a kickstand. He was in his early 50s. He had not had an erection without taking a little blue tablet he reckons for over a decade so we helped him with the number one goal that he didn't actually realize was going to be the number one goal which was erectile performance and when i said that to you you almost fell off your chair but can we talk about (laughs) testosterone because it's something that i'm talking to men more and more uh, about this especially as i get older as men we work with get older you have some experience you learn about this talk to me about cold water therapy and testosterone it will be a two-minute conversation. Um, I, can, I mean, this is one of the ways we, we get asked most about, isn't it? And I think we have to stop and say, okay, let's talk about testosterone first. I mean, there are daily variations in testosterone. Our levels come down in the evening. They're up in the morning. So that that certainly helps to your, uh, your, your client. And then there are some circadian variations in testosterone as well across day and night. The evidence... You know, I read the men's health magazines too. You know, I, I read the newspapers, I read, you know, social media, and I see it all the time. And so, I, you know, you start to become convinced that if I have cold showers, that will boost my testosterone. And it was a, for a long period of time, I was telling my clients that too, and we were talking about it. And then I went deep on the literature. It seems to come from two areas. One, in winter times, men's sperm tends to be more active. Therefore, we've made a, a, if A equals B, therefore that must mean that our testosterone 
is going to be higher when we're exposed to colds temperature because wintertime is colder so it's almost like an a equals b b must be able to see i can't see any evidence of the a to c <clears throat> that's the bit i'm missing here so you know there was a 1991 study of i think it had about 20 men in it and they looked at the effect of exercise and cold therapy on on testosterone and they found that the exercise boosted testosterone the cold therapy didn't somehow in the marketing of that paper or somehow in the, the the pr that went around that paper it seemed to be misinterpreted that actually the cold therapy boosted the testosterone i think that's where a lot of this came from right? um actually studies have shown mostly the opposite sense yeah only a few studies but and i think when you start to see studies showing the opposite people stop studying it so it's almost like this is legacy effect that cold showers will boost your testosterone. But I'm not seeing that in, in the research. And I think one of the things that we've got to be really aware of here is that there may be individuals who start doing taking cold showers, but that's part of an overall well-being focus. And perhaps the cold showers are what they're focusing on, but perhaps they've actually started changing their other patterns you know, eating healthier, which can have a, an, ex, an effect on, on your testosterone. Exercising is probably one of the biggest ways to uh, boost your testosterone, both aerobic and anaerobic. But I think you get an additional benefit from sort of resistance training as I know. You well, especially got, big lifts, so squats, bench yeah. press, the big compound exercises, deadlifts, yeah. walking lunges. And we're, we're doing another podcast coming up next semester with semester three with uh, one of Australia's leading strength training experts and a former two times Mr. World. I can't wait for that one as well. So we'll get into a lot of the building mechanisms of resistance training then. So it sounds yeah. like we can give a, a tick to brown adipose tissue or to brown fat with cold water exposure and with testosterone, not so well, much. I'm just going to quote you that study. Testosterone levels significantly increased 20.8% in these 32 19 year old males after um, physical exercise using a, a bicycle but can i say when you're 19 you just need to sit on the back of a bus and your hormones kick in <laughs> this, this is the other point is can you apply that to 59 year olds do, do you know what i mean this is what i mean by the abuse of research but during the cold water stimulation testosterone decreased by 10 percent somehow that got translated into cold water increases your testosterone and and this i've seen this in a few other studies now of course sauna decreases sperm activity so it is quite a reasonable thing to say well if sauna decreases sperm activity and exposure to cold will do the opposite and therefore that will boost my testosterone i can see where people are going there yeah and i can see why it would seem logical but is there strong evidence? And I'm going to say no. Uh, and and I have gone very, very deep on this. And I just cannot find the evidence if it does exist. And the other thing, too, that I must point out here is I am looking in peer review journals where the science has had peer review. Um, there are in the last 10 years, and particularly five years, there are a number of what I what we call predatory journals these journals who publish papers as if they're scientific papers that don't go through rigorous peer review. Um, in the in our world, our clinical and academic world, we would disregard them. If you were an academic, they wouldn't be considered legitimate in your, in your uh, academic portfolio. And I think in that arena, 
there may be some pseudoscience being presented as science and that's getting legs in this area. Now, the only way you'll ever know is have your bloods done, expose yourself to it, control everything else, and don't change anything else in your life and see if it makes a difference. And there might be an N equals one positive thing for you. So it sounds like testosterone backs up my personal experimentation on this, that cold water leads more to a reduction rather than an expansion. <laughs> 100%. Well, you know, physiology is physiology. Uh, if you look at how we consistently um, respond as humans, that is one consistent response. We've started there. We've finished there. Wizard's <laughs> shaking his head, calling me an idiot. Let's get on to something where there is a lot more rigor. And we've been dealing with, well, I've been in this world for 25 years, ever since I was an athlete and then as an assistant coach at the Institute of Sport and then moving down to Hobart when I was in my early 20s. Like we knew way, way, way back then you train the body and then you recover the body. So talk to me about cold water exposure and recovery. So the short of it is that there, there's so much interest in this area, and correctly so, and sports science journals are littered with um, discussion, interest in it. I think there, there is, you know, I can list here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight studies showing, you know, um, accelerated subjective recovery, uh, particularly when it comes to soreness after exercise. And I can also show you another eight studies here that, that, that didn't show any effect. And so once again, not all exercise is equal in duration, intensity. Not all athletes are equal in their training, preparation, adaptation to that exercise. So that, that for me is a very reasonable explanation as to why you might see some things in some studies and some in not. So if we step out a little bit of the literature and we say, well, what's the bigger, what are the bigger meta-analyses saying when they look at thousands of patients in these studies? They show that predominantly there are perceptions of increased recovery after cold water exposure, whether it be on the muscles themselves or it be total body cold water exposure. I think that's fairly consistent that there's a perception of less soreness. And a, and a perception, and some studies show that up to 24 hours and one or two after 24 hours, you get more delayed onset soreness. So I think that that would be beneficial. When you start breaking down and looking at the physiological benefits within that and how that might, might relate to performance in your next, your next sort of exertion, that's where it's a little less clear. Yeah. So, so there's definitely perceptions of recovery, less soreness. Um, but actually having better performance is not always clear. That that means, and, I, and there's lots and lots of meta-analysis uh, of this. What I've started to see come into the literature now is in the recovery space, and this makes a lot of sense, is what we call contrast therapy, using contrast, where we use heat and cold, so we might be pulsating the muscles. So it's vasoconstriction to vasodilation. Vasodilation. And, and I think that physiologically makes a lot of sense. I think it may reduce the soreness uh, and the perception of soreness, but actually the way you recover and the way you grow post-exercise is actually the inflammatory system kicks in, you get all the red cells down there, you start this healing process, you lay down collagen if it's needed, you repair the tears in the muscle and that. It's never made sense to me to, to take all the, try and push the blood away 
from that process by, by being in ice. That's never really made sense to me. Um, and then expect the muscle to be fully recovered for the next bout of exercise. But but just on, on from a physiology point of view, for in you know, I studied a long time ago, you living, breathing this. My basic understanding when I think of vasoconstriction, vasodilation, but when you get cold water and then that pushes everything away from the extremity and then when you get heat, it pushes it back. So you're getting this shunt. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the big areas that athletes, especially if there's an endurance component on your sport, or let's just talk about you know, anyone listening to this who wants to be a, in inverted commas, corporate athlete. If you've got DOMS, delayed onset of muscle soreness, because you've got those micro tears in the muscle as well, yeah. going back to actin filament theory, then when you bring in recovery, it's going to help you get waste products, so especially lactic acid out of the system. So to me, that's what's always made sense, to get that shunt from hot to cold, getting waste products out, getting it back into the circulatory yeah. system, yeah. Yeah. break down, then a day or two you can go again. Do you still agree with that? A hundred percent. I, you know, For me, it doesn't make sense if you want the positive adaptation to 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 training. And I remember the training effect is actually breaking down cells in the muscles. Yeah. And by doing that, then you create create, we talked about hormetic responses earlier. Well, this is exactly what's happening here. But the adaptation then is to repair them and repair them stronger. You grow new blood vessels in there. So, you know, I don't know if you ever remember watching Lance Armstrong or Jan Ulrich's leg muscles back in the day. I mean, yeah, they're just littered with veins. So you create new blood vessels in there. You you that wasn't that I, testosterone? It was probably a lot of things, but you know, they were the concept of creating new blood vessels was there. Whether they prom promoted were creating more by creating taking lots of other products, well, we know they did. But even current current elite athletes, you look at them and they'll have a lot of veins in the muscles. And you look at guys in the gyms who are really well defined; they'll have a very very high vasculature. You can see it, but internally, the micro vessels are the ones you're growing because you produce more oxygen to those. Muscles and particularly endurance athletes, more oxygen, more red cells, more more um, endurance. So those doesn't make sense to shunt all the blood away and stop all of that. Yes, it makes sense to, from a pain perspective or soreness perspective, because that's just a byproduct of the inflammatory response. But it doesn't make sense to take it away. So what I'm seeing in the literature now is a, a, a lot more push towards. Uh, alternating hot and cold in the recovery phase, that pulsing, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's probably where the literature is going, because in all the systematic reviews, you know, you, you continuously get this statement at the end, you know, in this one here, uh, systematic review, there was no evidence that cooling affects any objective recovery variable in a significant way during a 68 hour, uh, 96 hours recovery period. And then what you get after another one, due to the limited quality of studies, further well-designed research is draw, needed to draw firm conclusions at the every single systematic review, and there's a lot of them, which is, means there's a lot of studies. You're getting this limited quality of studies, further better designed studies before we can draw any conclusion. But I think there is a strong trend towards the heat and cold coming out of the okay. literature. 
Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. You've researched this for days. We could talk about this for hours. Let's wrap up recovery and I'll summarize. I'm going to give it a tick and it sounds like it's the temperature shunting, not just the cold. So that example you said, and I think I put you onto this when you first started doing saunas and I said, you know, just breathe Buckley hard the fuck up, but have a sauna. I love the 10 minute protocol sauna and then a cold water shower for 60 yeah. to 90 yeah. seconds, 10 minute sauna or start at eight to 10 minutes in the heat, 60 to 90 seconds in the cold, do that two or three times, you feel great. That's a regular weekly practice for me and I've been doing it for a couple of years and I will do that while ever I'm on this beautiful planet. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think there are a couple of sort of side exceptions to the discussion I've just had from a performance perspective. I mean, if you're performing in heat, it makes a lot of sense to try and cool the body down. So, you know, the application of, you see a lot of uh, athletes now wearing cooling vests. Mm. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's different. And there was a, a really, really good study that came out of Canberra uh, from a, a researcher, Joanna Vale. Uh, and there they looked at, um, they were, it was cycling and they were doing um, uh, in, in hot temperature, these protocols of cycling. And if they cool the body down in between the different intermittent bouts of exercise, then the, the, the cyclists who were cooled down, they were able to prolong their, their, um, their power a lot longer than if they weren't cooled down. So, so there is a use, there is a, from a performance perspective, there is a good use of, heat, of cold therapy. What you're trying to do is get the body, you know, from overheating. That makes sense. Yeah. From a recovery post exercise perspective, I think that contrast that you just mentioned there, I think that's kind of where things are going. Let's get into an area that I know gets you fired up a little bit, sports injury. I've been with you a number of times having a lovely Guinness to make or to pay homage to your upbringing. And we're watching what's called in Australia soccer, globally called football. And they'll bring an athlete off and put ice and you start swearing and cursing and hissing like I never knew you could. Talk to me about sports injuries and ice. 
Yeah, oh, you fire me up now. I'm glad we didn't start with this one. I mean, it's a little bit. I, like I led into it. Look, you see, I started with one that I thought was much more scientific: brown adipose tissue. I thought testosterone could have gone either way. A new recovery was going to get a tick, and I knew this would fire you up. So yeah, go. I, I learned this myself um, as a teenager, um, as a steeplechaser. For anybody who doesn't know what steeplechase is, it's either two thousand meters as a junior or three thousand as a senior on the running track over barriers you have five jumps every um five unmovable fixed jumps so if you hit them you hit them um every lap and you have a water jump um like the horses jump and you land in the middle of that uh you know quite quite a high and long jump and the water doesn't break much of your fall and so i used to sprain my ankle regularly on this can, can i just go back you, you've undersold steeplechase because as a 1500 meter runner in Australia, like I'd won at state championships a few times and went down to Tasmania and I wanted to really break through at that national level and I was looking at 1,500 metres and there were you know, a lot of people ahead of me mm. and I looked at steeple and thought, there's not as many people doing steeple. Mm. I deduced that steeple was somewhere between 1,500 metres and the 5,000 metres. So I was way too big to be a 5,000 metre runner. I thought, I just got to double the 1,500 metre. Oh, it, it was so hard. It is, it mm. is grueling because you you break rhythm when you do the hurdles. Whereas if you do 400 meter hurdles, you can get your pattern and rhythm the same amount of steps in between each hurdle. That's what a good hurdler does. And then you had the water jump and you had the water jump to fatigue. It is a an excruciating event. You just undersold that a little bit. It's, it's, it was a, a great event for me because every every year I was finishing second or third in the 800 or 1500 at nationals. I just couldn't beat the top, top guy. And then I entered myself in the steeplechase the day after finishing second in the 1500. And I recognized that I was able to jump. I learned how to jump growing up. My brother and I used to pretend we were horses jumping, jumping, uh, you know, uh, around the farm. And um, so I was able to jump, not pretty, but I could jump and I could run fast. And when I put the two of them together, I got my first national. So I have a, a love affair with it. But I had a hate affair with it because it was a tough event. But what really brought home for me was that because I had a prone ankle. I used to sprain it at least two or three times in a season. And, um, I, and of course, everybody would tell you, put it on ice. And that's what I used to do. But I used to keep re-injuring it and re-injuring it and re-injuring it. And then, then I stopped putting ice on and I went the other way. I started heating it. I don't know why, because I was, you know, 15, 16 or maybe 17 at the time. And I haven't sprained my ankle since. Now, if I want to summarize the literature since, what we know is that there are times to use ice on an injury yeah it does decrease inflammation it does shunt the blood away and it does decrease pain so that's fairly consistent uh, and if you don't believe me go and get a block of ice put it on your arm and watch watch the skin become cold watch how over it you'll be uncomfortable after a while and watch a little while later while you can take the ice off get a pin pin prick it and you won't feel much so it does consistently do that in humans yeah the question you have to ask is, is that a good thing in every injury every time? Yeah. And I would say in a lot of majority of injuries, and the literature would support this, that actually it's not. Because what happens is that while you don't swell up there as much, you're actually, and you get the analgesic effect, you're actually more prone to injuring that particular injury again if you've iced it than if you haven't iced it. 
So that's the first thing that's come out of the literature. And that's only come out in the literature maybe in the last six to seven years, because for a long, long time, we've been using the, the you know, the compression elevation, the uh, ice compression elevation. It was, it was rice. It was Dr. Rice, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rest, ice, compression, compression eleva- elevation. elevation. Now, the original author of that has taken the ice out with the new evidence. And actually, we've moved to moved to lots of other ways of looking at it uh, without using ice. And one of them is peace, you know, protect elevation, avoid anti-inflammatory drugs, compression and education. Because as soon as you tell people to not put ice on, you've got to educate them. So now there are some caveats to that. And, and what I've discovered myself with a lot of the athletes that I coach is that the majority get the same analgesic effect with the heat as they do the, the, the ice. And that is true. The evidence uh, is consistently shows that too. You get the same analgesic effect. Yes, it will swell up more. Yeah. And yes, it may take, it may appear to take longer for that swelling to go away, but the resolution of that injury will be better. So, so that- are you saying if a, an athlete listens to this, a professional athlete who listens to this, or a recreational athlete who's listening to this podcast and they do a grade one hamstring tear on the weekend and they're sitting on the bench, no matter what sport they do, that they should be applying heat rather than ice? If it was my hamstring, I would have a hot water bottle on it, not ice. That's probably the best way of answering that hmm. because they're looked after by some you know, exceptionally experienced physios and trainers who get to know what works in their athletes under their conditions and in their sport and you know, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna prescribe for that person. If it was my hamstring, um, I would immediately be putting heat on it because I would want all the the goodness that's in my blood, all the proteins, antibodies, all the inflammatory processes. I'd want them all down there quickly. I'd want red cells down there trying to prevent more damage. Yeah. I would probably accept that um it'll swell up more than if I put ice on it. But I see that as beneficial. Yeah, I don't see that as detrimental. And and I do cringe when I look at the telly and I see them sitting on the bench with ice on an injury. I know what they're doing. They're decreasing the inflammation in the whole and getting an analgesic effect in the in the hope that they'll be back in action quicker. That's a natural response. However, there are some parts of the body where that swelling could do damage to other organs. There are some parts of the body where if that swelling is significant already without heating it, Putting more heat on it might create something like a compartment syndrome. You know, it might damage the organs or the tissues that are surrounding the injury. So there will be appropriate times to put ice on injuries where actually the swelling itself is going to do damage. If you go back to those patients in intensive care I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be trying to heat up their brains because the, if you swell the brain any more than it's swollen, it's got nowhere to go except get pushed down into the body and 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 you get a process that can be called coning, which is instant death. So in that scenario, swelling the brain any more in an injury is not a good thing. You actually want to restrict it because there's only so much swelling the brain can take. That's true as well in other parts of the body. And so there would be times where ice is being done not to heal that injury up. It's been done to make sure the swelling from that injury doesn't do damage to other parts of the body. And that's where it is appropriate. I'm going to have a really good conversation this weekend with our physios at Manly. And I'm going to ask them what they think. Because at the end of an NRL game, you go into the dressing rooms. It sounds like 
people are moving house. You know when you got removalists in and they've mm-hmm. got the tape in you, they yeah, and they rip yeah. the tape off? So you'll have bags of ice and then that cellophane tape, which will be wrapped around ankles, knees, hips, shoulders, elbows, yeah, all body yeah, parts. Yeah, and then yeah. you, if you look around the 18, sorry, the 17 players who have played, I reckon more than half. Some games it feels like almost two-thirds have ice on different parts of their body. So I'm going to have a really good discussion with our physios and just ask them what do they think and we'll see if there's any other research coming out either at the pointy and in sport or I'm curious also what you said that for you, so maybe this is much more whether you use ice for injuries or not is on your body rather than just looking at a blanket approach. Yeah, let's be fairer on this and and, and as I say, I'm trying to apply the evidence, but you've also got to think about what's the injury, how long have they had the injury, you know, and is this their only way of keeping them on the field for a duration of X number of years so they can optimise their athletic performance, you know, and if it is, then, and I would suspect with a lot of those players that those injuries are ongoing, chronic, and actually what they're doing there with the with the ice is an analgesic effect. Um, it's not necessarily a curative effect. And I see in that scenario having an analgesic effect allows them to be able to continue to manage their injuries and function at that elite level. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is different to somebody phoning me up. You know, um, one, one of my athletes did phone me up today and had a micro tear in the hamstring. I immediately said to start, to, you know, to sit on a hot water bottle in that scenario. That's different to somebody who's perhaps got some chronic shoulder or knee issue and this is the way they've worked out themselves they can manage that injury and stay on the pitch for any contact sport especially at the professional level and a long season athletes the good athletes this is a big learning of mine switching from track and field and doing individual sports when i first stepped out to do sports conditioning strength and conditioning coaching and then to contact sports great players have to learn to either live with or even some of them love pain if you're in a martial arts Mm -hmm. or a boxing type activity you've actually almost got to be you not almost you are left of center and you you enjoy in yeah. judo, like judo athletes and wrestlers will say they realised they were good when they could handle pain and they even wanted to bring more on. I think you've nailed that, that to continue playing through the season, you've got to have the ice to help decrease the inflammation and just to get through. Yeah, a lot of elite, particularly contact sports athletes, when they retire, their, their bodies are like a used car, a rental car. You know, they, they have taken it to the limit. And I think that's absolutely fine if that's their choice that they're going to optimise their earnings and their uh, sporting potential and you and I would do the same in our respective sports you know we put aside that long-term effect but when you have an acute injury for the you know outside of that arena you have an acute injury then I actually would use heat therapy provided it was in an area and I wasn't going to you might not need to use any heat therapy if it's swelling up naturally then I'll just leave it yeah Mm. but if you want some pain relief then you would need to go with a bit of heat. I'd go with heat therapy. So summarize sports injury for a lot of people, for the active athletes, the weekend warriors, rather than putting ice when you first get a hamstring injury or a little nick or tear somewhere, Dr. Tom is recommending heat, but with different athletes, especially professional athletes, to keep them going and reduce inflammation, it, it sounds like a combination of both. What I will do, underscore on any of this, Google is not your doctor. 
the amount of athletes, Tom, over the last 10 years I've had who've self-diagnosed, some of them they get it right the first or second time and then they go, see, I've got evidence. But then I've had athletes who've just got no idea, go to Google and it's actually dangerous. Seek a professional. So working with a doctor, a physio, someone who is qualified in this area, not Google. A hundred percent. And I'm not going to allow you to have a rant about hacks. We've done this before. I'm not going to allow you to have the rant about hacks because I'm not either. I can see you want to. The problem in this space is that not every injury is the same. Yeah. Is it a re-injury? Is the mechanism of the injury, the location of the injury, what you're trying to achieve with the injury? And then the other issue here is that what works for me in my injury, which might be in the same region as yours, knees are the best example of this. Oh, I've got knee issue. Oh, this worked for me, therefore it'll work for you. I mean, that's one of one of the things a lot of people use as a hack. This hack worked for me, it worked for you. You can't apply that when it comes to injuries. You've really got to got to approach it from a professional perspective. And I will put a caveat up too. I, I will I will send my athletes, I'll give them that advice initially, and then I'll send my athletes to professionals, either a physiotherapist or a chiropractor. We have two we work closely with, and then they will take it from there. Yeah. Mm. But I will not be telling them put ice on it and take an anti-inflammatory medicine because the evidence is very clear that that's not the way to go for long-term resolution healing in those scenarios. Let's talk about the psychological effect, and I'm going to take the lead on this, because if you had said today that there is no evidence around brown adipose tissue, there's no evidence around testosterone, there's no benefits around recovery, and there's no benefits around sports injury as far as using ice or cold water, I would have gone, oh, I don't care, I'm going to still do it. Because when mm. I have my cold showers most days, and when I swim in the ocean a couple of times a week, and when I have an ice bath... A couple of times a month after, I feel bloody amazing. There is something about cold water exposure that has now drawn me to to know I will just do this for the rest of my life. On a Monday morning, 6 a.m. at Balmoral, I have a bunch of corporates and, and, and one or two mates as well that I've known outside the corporate world, and we, we have an exercise session, 6 a.m. to about 6.50. Then we go and sit down at Balmoral, have a coffee. I swim every Monday morning. I just hop in for five or ten minutes. During the middle of winter, they all say I'm mad, and I'll yell out, yeah, it's good for your mitochondria. It's good for your brown fat. I don't know what it's like for sports injuries. It's probably not going to help your hard-ons, uh, but it's good for recovery. Now I can summarize all the research. <laughs> but I just do it because it makes me feel great. And then I get out of the water time I go and have a cold shower even though there's warm showers there and it's just a wonderful start to my week so if you'd said there is no evidence at all showing that cold water therapy is good for you I would say hey absolutely respect that I'm going to keep doing it because it makes me feel good so there are definite psychological benefits running through regular cold water exposure irrespective of what I say from here here on if you do any activity that gives you well-being, mental well-being, uh, perceptions of well-being, perceptions of joy, perceptions of feeling good, then that is good for you. Full stop. So, um, no matter what, what what activity it is, then that 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 is you're getting a benefit from it. So there is some evidence on perceptions of recovery. It's just not necessarily what. People think, you know, it's not consistent and it seems to be better with heat therapy. There, there is no evidence in the testosterone that I can find. There is evidence in some injuries, but not consistently in injuries. And there's evidence that it may do more damage in other injuries. But boy, there is strong evidence when it comes to mental well-being and particularly mental health 
and particularly depression, to the point where, uh, you know, the recent 2021 systematic review showed consistent across all, nearly across all the studies, this consistent gradient effect here. So you're starting to see now why people would be attracted to this as a a health well-being therapy because of course there is no health without mental health and so if you have a a, a behavior or a therapy or a lifestyle activity that gives you the beneficial effects i'm seeing in the literature against depression then then absolutely yeah and so a systematic review two four six eight nine studies and all the studies showed beneficial effects that would one of the things about this though is that it wasn't application of water or ice to the body. It was exposure of the body to cold temperatures. So this is where we're looking at the cryotherapy or whole body cold therapy in all of these studies. We'll, we'll keep going on that one, but just want to throw in there as well. A lot of the benefits I believe I get and why <laughs> I swim in the ocean every week, it's the nature effect as well. And we, we talk about you know blue zones, green zones where you've got trees, but beautiful blue zones now where you've got oceans and creeks and rivers. There's a lot of benefit, again, connecting with nature. It is one of the only times, probably the only time every week when I swim for around 30 minutes where I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm not talking to someone, it's just me and my thoughts and that rhythmic effect. You actually get to connect and think and just sometimes even wipe your brain. There's a lot of benefits on that as well. Oh, the totally. Cold water plus nature. You, you get you getting the, the double, you know, you get the double whammy there, aren't you? Because you get the nature benefits and the molecules we get exposed to in nature that actually have, you know, both physiological and mental well-being benefits. But also, I think too, the adaptation to the exercise that you're talking about there actually makes your neurotransmitters far more effective. You know, noradrenaline was one of those neurotransmitters. And they're the things that also make you feel good and make you feel alive. You know, they're the things that fire you up. So I think there's, you know, the studies, the research studies, they've been doing it therapeutically and testing it as a therapy under sort of medical supervision. They are really, really impressive. And there's a sort of a consistent way of doing it, five days of exposure, two rest days. The periods of exposure are not very high. They're like 120 to 180 seconds. So, you know, you talk about two to three minutes building up over time towards the, the end of the, the treatment phases, they tend to be at the higher level of three minutes. And the temperatures tend to go from minus 60 to minus 110 degrees centigrade. So that, that's quite cold. You know, that's jumping into a very cold freezer. But, the, but importantly, they're not jumping into ice. They're, you know, it's a different type of exposure, which is probably a bit more tolerable. And But they are seeing so we're, we're talking for, for anyone who's is not 100%, this is cryotherapy, yeah, where you actually yeah. go to, it's like a freezer standing up and it's freezing. You go in there and you get the benefits in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. And what they're seeing there is significant reduction in depressive symptoms and likewise uh, significant increases in self-rated quality of life. I think that's why when we were at a recent event, Andrew, we saw when Dino was guiding groups to through that ice exposure, that to me is the primary driver why people would go there. And I think that's why he had queues going around the block, because I think people do recognize that there is a significant quality of life, well-being 
mental health or we might be call it mental fitness or mental health benefit here to undertaking this experience. And I think that's why if you go down to Bondi Beach, you'll see people having this exposure. It's not because they know there's a whole body of evidence showing that actually it's it's going to make them live longer. Maybe that literature will come over time. Um, it's because I think people intuitively get this mental uh, well-being effect from it. When we worked with PwC, the event you're talking about, the outside, there were literally queues. Dino's event was the hottest ticket mm, in town, mm. even though it was the coldest. And the way that Dino did that in a 60 to 90 minute period is he would first of all go through the science around breathing. So it's, yeah, it's very, yeah. very informed by his relationship and learning through Wim Hof. So first of yeah. all, the science of breathing. Then he would teach people how to breathe, the diaphragmatic relaxed breathing. So you get the body into parasympathetic. You want to get the brain to go beta as well so relax those brain waves then he would get them to put that into practice and do a two minute ice bath the temperatures when we do work with dino we want to get the the little pools we use down to two to three degrees celsius it's bloody freezing i think one of the big psychological benefits on this and we do well, we get Dino in a lot of the programs we're doing with the navy and with some of the banks and after a four or six week program will have an event where they have to put in some of the breathing, some of the relaxation, some of the psychological constructs, control the self-talk. But you know what I think the big one is? It's social cohesion and the bonding. And when you've done a two or three minute ice bath and you're there shivering and you look at the person next to you and you go, how awesome was that? All the neurotransmitters are going crazy. The the, the outside part of your skin is alive. I think there's a huge psychological benefit in doing an activity like that, again, under guided conditions with a group and you get the bonding and you know events that we do we still run into some of the people at the navy and they talk about the last program whiz we did before christmas when we're in canberra and we made mm, some of the mm. the big pointy end people in the navy hop into like literally strip into back hop in their trunks and hop <laughs> in the dustbins and uh they're still talking about it yeah i 100 percent agree and i think you know um uh, our colleague shannon we work with who did it the other morning on, on the beach you know and um and she would probably I, I actually said to her we should invite her in into this to talk about her experience and she said that would be distress that she didn't want but i think you know, for her, she would probably concur with everything you just said there. It was a challenge and it was an experience. And it also helps people to understand just how they can regulate their physiology. And, you know, and Dino's master at this, you know. And so when it's done under supervision like that and you know what you're trying to achieve in doing it, I think one of the, the things that I, I, I ponder on this a lot is I think we will get bodies of evidence now in the next decade because more people are open and exposure to this and we may see that 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 regular exposure you adapt and you do get those benefits metabolically or you do get more benefit in a longevity i'm never saying that that may not happen I, i reserve the right to come back and say how wonderful it is when we have the evidence all at this point in time we just don't know the long term effects what what i do have to put in that caveat and you know i have to say this is that almost every heart foundation in the world have issued cautions over doing going into ice baths. And I think Dino's cohort at that PwC event, you know, I was doing an immersion uh, next door, different immersion next door, when 
my new dean I was doing that, I thought, I wonder if I'm ever going to be called into action at some point here with somebody having a, a ticker problem or so, worse so, than a so, heart just, attack. Just so we don't leave an open loop at that event, at any event we do, we do do a disclaimer That's and right. we ask people, That's do right. you have any cardiac conditions? There's a, a number of, well, you and I spoke, we won't yeah, mention the yeah. person, but someone we know close to someone who's close to us did a nice water exposure recently and he should not be doing that with his medical condition at all. It could bring that, that's out. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, remember when I was heard this was, you know, this was the one we were doing next door. That was the first thing I said to you was, wasn't it? You know, who's the demographic? What's their risk? And, uh, and all those steps were put in place. And so what I'm seeing, of course, is a lot of young people are, are onto this. When I lived in, in Charlton in London, there was what was called a lie, lie law or lie law, I think they call it. There are 50 meter open air pool open all year round. And I used to pass it all the time on my morning runs. And what I used to see was all these old geezers down there and they'd break the ice in the winter, get in, swim a lap and out. Now, they're, they're a complete different kettle of fish. They've been doing it their whole life. They do it across the season. And it's probably the thing that gives them purpose every morning. You know, I'd be the last person going in there and telling them not to do it. Yeah. But one thing I would say to them is don't do it on your own, just in case mm. that's the day you have the triggered heart attack. Mm. All right. Let's get to the fifth piece. And I hope that everyone sees the method or the madness behind our approach today. Number one, we wanted to go through what cold exposure is. There's a number of different modalities. Two, our experience, interesting hearing your experience from a three-year-old using ice and me having to get over my fear of cold water and actually make a cold my friend for swimming. Three, the science, and you went deep on that as well. And it's really around the hormesis effect is what we're chasing. A little bit of stress is good for you, too much will kill you. The same with cold water exposure. Then we looked at five areas of application. We looked at brown adipose tissue, brown fat. Uh, we're going to give that a tick. Testosterone sounds like it's got a cross at this stage. Recovery is more around the pulsing between hot and cold. Sports injury, when you first let out, I thought, eh, it's going to be all heat now, but it sounds dependent on the injury and also dependent on the, especially athlete and where they are in the season. So not everything is black and white. It can be, again, a combination of heat and cold. I love what's even come out of today and it wasn't planned. It's that dance or that pulsing between mm -hmm. heat and cold. And psychological effect, absolutely. We could talk for hours and hours on the psychological effects. The CWT protocol that I've put together, the cold water therapy protocol, and this is based on working with Dr. Tom and the research. It's based on my personal experience and based on literally hundreds of clients that you and I have worked with at the pointy end over the last few years. There's three levels. Level what number one is a cold shower. Level number two is cold water immersion. And level number three is ice bath or cold therapy. If you're just starting this, don't go and do cryotherapy or a two or three minute ice bath. You will literally shiver and go, that was the the worst experience shit 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 show I've ever had start with a cold shower and here's the way I want you to shower shower normally wash your hair wash all your bits and then at the end of the shower do three or four deep diaphragmatic breaths in through the nose for around four seconds out through the mouth 
and have the exhalation even a little bit longer to help trigger that parasympathetic activation and then turn the water to cold and just stay in, first of all, 30 seconds and then build up to a few minutes. I'd love people, Dr. Tom, doing that every second day. Mm -hmm. So if you could up your cold shower game to every second day, that will definitely give you some of the physical, the psychological benefits that we're talking about. And if you even do it like I do at Balmoral, you might get some of the environmental benefits. So start with a cold shower. Don't go straight into the cold shower. Go from warm to cold. In during summer now, especially we spend a lot of time up on the Gold Coast in Queensland with family. I don't even go hot. I just have cold yeah, showers up there because yeah. so you know, the water's so temperate anyway. The second level is cold water immersion. The research and experience around this, whether it's an ocean swim or a cold creek, it's about 10 to 15 degrees you're looking at. 10's bloody cold. I know when I've done some cold water swimming in Melbourne in the bay in winter, it does get under 10 degrees and you can feel that because you're hopping in your body just <laughs> shuts up. But around 10 to 15 minutes, whether it's an ocean swim, or whether it's in a creek. And, and I would advise people to build up to 20 minutes. Anything to add on that? No, I think that's that's um, generally what the literature is suggesting when you start look at how it's studied, you know, 10, 10 to 15 degrees centigrade, 10 to 15 minutes start anywhere between two and five minutes and gradually build up. I think a lot of protocols probably max out around 20 minutes. And, and I think that is important because if you look at homeostasis you know the body what the body where the body likes to auto regulate to um it doesn't like to run alkalinic it doesn't like to run acidic and it doesn't like to run cold it doesn't like extremes of heat either so you shouldn't hold it out at those extremes for very long periods because you can overcome the body's adaptation processes and we know from uh, we know from the literature from battlefields over the centuries that soldiers injured in the cold we know physiologically what happens to long-term cold exposure and long-term can be 20 minutes onwards so i think um, 20 minutes seems to be enough of course of course people who are adapted you know i mean dino dino could stay in 10 to 15 degrees i'm sure for hours and and be reading the, the sunday times you know he, but he's adap he's adapted. He's different. Yeah. Wim Hof has done a ice water submersion. It was just over zero degrees for a couple mm -hmm. of hours. Now most people would do that and go into hypothermia yeah, yeah. around five or ten minutes. So summarising a cold water immersion, ocean swim, or a cold creek, up to about twenty minutes and build up to it. Yeah. Level number three is the big kahunas. It's the ice bath or cryotherapy. Now cryotherapy you'll do at, at a business that has the chamber or a sporting association, and that's a short, sharp dose as you. Mentioned before what's yeah. the maximum time on cryotherapy well the studies seem to go to three minutes they don't go beyond three minutes so you know that's the protocol i've seen across all those nine studies was um, start starting try and get to one and a half to two minutes and then to, once you're adapted over three or four weeks is to start to try and go to three minutes that seems yes. to be the cryotherapy protocols Similar for an ice bath, so the temperature will try and get the water down to you drop the thermometer in, it's two to three degrees, yeah. and it's about two minutes for most people, three minutes, and you tap out after that as well. So I'll summarize, the cold water therapy protocol, level one is a cold shower, have that at the end of your normal shower, do that three or four times a week. Level number two is cold water immersion, getting in water 10 to 15 degrees. If you live in a really hot place, you're not going to get water anywhere near that cold, but go for up to 20 minutes. And the third one, ice bath or cryotherapy, 
three minutes, tap out, and I'd only be doing that level three about once a week for most people. So I do a couple of cold water showers. I do one or two cold water immersions. And personally, I only do the ice bath or cryotherapy a couple of times a month. Yeah, and that's a couple of times a month more than, than I've been doing it. Um, but I, I feel motivated to to maybe go back and try the ice bath again. Fire up, Buckley. If today has not got you fired up and it hasn't got our listeners fired up to bring cold water therapy into their practice, I don't know what will. Hey, thank you. You've done days, literally, of research behind to allow us to get an about a 90-minute podcast. It's really valuable. I've learned a lot in this process as well. I'm going to change some of the teachings I have when I'm with groups just to give them a bit more of a frame. And I really do like that cold water therapy protocol, level one to level two to level three. And I'll finish, Tom, by saying watch this space because this has yeah, evolved yeah. so much over the last five or 10 years. I know we'll definitely come back in at least a year or so whenever there's some breaking research. In fact, we'll come back and update everybody. Final message on cold water therapy. What do you want to leave people with? I think the decay message is that we're all any we're all experts in our own well-being. We're all experts in our own health, and I think uh, you use that n equals one experiment. If you're going to anything extreme beyond the shower, then I think you know seek seek some guidance. Do it with some people. A bit of trial and error. Perhaps the evidence doesn't show it's the magic wand for making us live long, but it certainly has use in many different context in our life but do do it carefully seek advice and if you are somebody who you know is at risk of heart problems in particular then then i'd be very cautious and i'd really be making sure that you're you've got medical clearance to do it awesome uh three summaries from my end i, I thought today the research the rigor you went through it's, it's cool uh, to see you keeping up with that but the second one i think you really iced the content and the third one is peace, my friend. Just chill. I'm out of here. <laughs> Very good. Very good ending. Wizard, another podcast with Dr. Tom, the most prolific guest so far on the Performance Intelligence Podcast. What did you take out of our discussion on cold water therapy? I had a lot more than I thought I would, to be honest. I mean, we do a lot of these science obs and I always learn something. This one, particularly for me, really um, had a lot for me to take out of it. So just overall, I, I really liked how he blended his own personal experience, you know, running at a higher level. Um, and then he, he put that in with the science and how he sees that on other people as well. So I, I thought that was really interesting. We got to know more about Dr. Tom in this one. Mm. I've been trying to tease that out of him. Oh, for podcasting the last couple of years in different formats, definitely the last 20. And he even said at the end, he felt much more comfortable bringing himself to the podcast. We see this with a lot of researchers, psychologists, academics, because they live in this world where they're coming up with concepts and constructs and research, and they've got other people trying to poke holes. So there's a subconscious pattern that happens in that research world where you don't drop your guard. So I love that we're now meeting Dr. Tom. Mm. I also saw you really scribble, and I don't think it was for any of our notes, when he was talking about rolling your ankle. Did that really hit a nerve with you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I tend to roll my ankle at least once a year. At uh, least. Come at on, least, champ. Yeah. You come in here after Minimum. soccer. I think it's soccer. Sometimes it may be after barbecues and drinking games at your house. Mm -hmm. Another conversation for another podcast. Yeah. And you limp. And you like you're a big lad. You look like a timber worker or a wizard, right? So when you've got a sprained ankle, it's not a light 
Yeah, I, I once rolled my ankle at a, at a mosh pit in someone's living room, but we won't go there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I roll my ankle a lot. I like to say they're made of rubber at this point. They just There's nothing in there. It just could be walking down the street and I'll roll them. And every time I'll put ice on it because that's what you do, right? And then Dr. Tom comes in and drops his bomb and he's like, well, don't do that. Even the guy who wrote the original paper uh, said, don't put ice on it. So I don't know. I'm going to have to rethink my whole life now. Side note, are you doing balance and proprioception exercises? Probably, sh- probably should be. <laughs> the way you paused and looked at me blankly, no, let's have a chat about this offline. And also walk around in bare feet because then you get your toes to claw back and you get a lot more stability when you're not wearing shoes. So the thongs count as bare feet? Wizard, wizard. Did you learn anything else? <laughs> I was just, it was a small thing as well. We were going to get Dr. Tom to come in uh, to the studio, but we recorded this one online over Zoom. And the reason was because he had, I don't know how many research papers. He told me he had three monitors open at one time and he kept searching through research papers. And I thought that was just really interesting. He's like, at one point he goes, oh, hang on, give me a second and I'll try and find the, the research he was talking about. We'd never had that before. And I thought that was, yeah, it was just really interesting. It just shows that his brain and the database of the resources he has access to as well. For me, three takeouts. One was it was a really good opportunity to go deep, or for Tom to go deep, and for us to talk to him about it on the rigor and the science or lack thereof in some areas. I'm asked about this, you know, when you follow me, every single presentation in question time. Now we have a real process and we can say tick or cross. Is there science behind that modality? The second part, I loved how we had the dance. I'm looking forward to, to listening to this in long form on a bike ride. And the dance between science and the practical approach, which I've normally been practical, but you know, I've been imbued in science for years. Tom's really being scientific. But we found, as you said, there was a lot of anecdotal experience, a lot of mm. what he'd done, even since a three-year-old, when yeah. he learned about cold and what he did for his ankle as a steeplechaser. So I love that we're now getting more of a blend between science and practical experience, rather than just a science of science, science, science. We're getting to know more of Dr. Tom, and I love doing these interviews with him, Wiz, because we do have a nice dance between the two. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Before we started recording, you and Dr. Tom were talking, and you said, oh, this one will go for probably about an hour, maybe an hour 15, and I straight, I just said, no, it won't. It's going to go for a lot longer than that, because they always do, because you just, you've got so much to talk about, and obviously Dr. Tom you know, knows so, so many things, and he wants to get the information out there. I think we almost got it into 90 minutes. Oh, the other big thing, how could I forget this? Dr. Tom got his ear pierced and had a hoop earring when he was 18. <laughs> so did you from what I hear. I really, I want to see the picture of you with a mullet and a big hoop earring. That have you be... seen that? It was, I don't think my I birthday. saw it. It was floating around. Mum had a picture. I'll bring that in for you as well. But um, <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I'm a bogan by, by trade and you wouldn't be surprised what I did in my youth. But Dr. Tom, I've always thought, was mm. much more studious and serious yeah. and you know, didn't make some of the silly mistakes that I made. Now imagining him squatting on a street corner somewhere with a bottle of whiskey in, in one hand and a big hoop earring. And... <laughs> He's Irish. <laughs> yeah, so that's it for this podcast. And I have to say, I think this one in particular really opened my eyes to all the, the little things that I've learned over the time working here, you know, I wouldn't have con- considered myself to be, you know, a high performer. I would have thought, oh, what can I get out of this podcast? I don't normally listen to podcasts, but I'm just every every time I'm just picking up little things here and there, just adding them, adding them into the bank. Wiz, I love hearing that. I love hearing that you're listening, you're learning like we all are on this podcast. That's it for now. We'll talk to you all in the next episode.